New York Times critic Janet Maslin wrote that this movie is as handsome to watch as it is preposterous to listen to. In The New Yorker, Pauline Kael said, it's like visual rock and it's bursting with energy. And Time Out London called it one of the best of 1979. On this episode of Ruined Childhoods, we decide the fate of the Warriors. Which one will it be? Greetings, Starfighters, or I perhaps I should say Seasons Greetings, Starfighters. Oh, boy. Hey. I knew it was going to be something, but I didn't know it was going to be that. I had no idea it was going to be that until that <laughs> happened. So, um, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't come up with this stuff in advance. Otherwise, it would probably get filtered out. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I, want to, I want to apologize to our, our listeners who crave that Tuesday morning notification on their phone saying, yes, there is a new episode of Ruined Childhoods, but here's what happened. I completely lost my voice on Friday. Was it Friday? Yeah, Friday. And it was gone Saturday, and then Sunday it started to come back, and we just missed our opportunities to record. And um, it is now Tuesday... John, you don't need to apologize. You didn't lose your voice. You weren't like, oh, man, I really don't want to record a podcast before Tuesday. So I'm just going to kind of lose my voice for a few days. You didn't choose this. How convenient. Yeah. Like this happened to you. Yeah. You don't need to apologize. We appreciate. I'm sure I could speak for those listening that we appreciate your uh, explanation but hey you know what we're not getting paid to ha- to drop these on tuesday we certainly aren't that's <laughs> we're why getting you don't paid with ads we are getting paid though with um well hopefully with some some reviews and we get paid with your emails send send them to ruinedchildhoodspod gmail.com and your love sure and to quote the uh, i don't the romantics maybe I don't want to lose your love tonight. <laughs> yeah, right. Or today, whenever you're listening to this. Anyway, it's Ruined Childhoods, the podcast where we talk about beloved properties, that cinematic properties, franchises, classics, cult favorites, the type of things that in today's Hollywood often get get bandied about in terms of a, a long-awaited sequel a, a remake or perhaps a reboot, if you will. And what John and I here discuss is whether or not we think, first of all, like, okay, sh- should that even be done? Should that be touched? Is this, Are we talking about an untouchable property? And what ideas we might have and suggestions that we might have as, as fans or as people who... Uh, empathize with fans of these properties what would be the the what we would think is the best route best way That's to right. go best yeah path to choose. Uh, 
And for anybody who listened to our last episode, we talked about The Graduate. Uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to follow up with on that and circle back around to. First of all, our mother did email us. I'm not going to read the email, but she did include the photograph that Dan referenced of our father in the, I guess, pose. Yeah. The Benjamin Braddock scuba pose. And uh, that's posted on our Instagram feed at Ruin Childhood's Pod. I'm not going to lie. He looks good. <laughs> he looks. He looks like he's having fun. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I appreciate the speed at which our mother was able to find that photo to send to us. Yes. I had a feeling, though, because I feel like the photo albums had have been some in somewhat recent history arranged, organized, perhaps. Uh-huh. And I just I had a sense of because I do enjoy when I'm at the house and I have the time, I enjoy looking through the old photos, seeing the old houses, the old hairstyles, styles in <laughs> general. I I felt like that picture was not far out of reach. I'm glad I was more questioning whether I was inventing the existence of this picture. So I'm glad. It's, there. It it's a real thing. It's real. Yeah. Also, we mentioned something and i said that we were going to come back around to it we never did but we never talked about how the graduate was parodied in wayne's world 2 yes because you had mentioned it and i was like no we'll come we'll come back around to that but we didn't and that's my fault and the entire ending of the graduate is meticulously parodied to the point that they shot it at or at least the exterior of the same exact church oh yeah it was so absolutely incredible. Such a huge part of my childhood to see, I don't know, Wayne's World 2 do that. What's up? Just like the blend. Well, first of all, and kudos to Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, the writers on Wayne's World 2, for somehow mixing into this extended graduate illusion a Terminator 2 reference with Robert Patrick yes. pulling Wayne over. Ask, have you seen this boy? Well, yeah, and there's there's one thing that I really want to highlight, and the Wayne's World 2 parody of The Graduate has since changed the way that I see The Graduate, and I don't, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that I saw the Wayne's World 2 parody before I actually saw the actual Graduate, or at least for me, it definitely stuck into my brain and psyche way before The Graduate did. Yeah. But the scene where, and I'll just say the Wayne's World 2 version, the scene where uh, Wayne goes to the garage to speak to the (laughs) gas station attendant, where he's basically saying like, sorry, can we get a better actor here? And they bring in. And then they replace him. Yeah. Charlton Heston. Charlton Heston comes in to replace him, and he gives this, like, moving performance. And then you watch The Graduate, and you watch the scene that that's parodying, and you watch the gas station station attendant, and you're just like, holy cow, that guy is terrible. I had the the same reaction. The fact that they made a point to highlight that person's horrible acting is genius. It's genius, and it's the only time because i i am not i feel like charlton heston the person has gotten in the way of charlton heston 
the actor for me in for sure. in many yeah. respects. But I felt like I feel like the Wayne's World two cameo is one of those things where I'm like, you know what, I'm just gonna enjoy this little Charlton Heston cameo. Right. And then I found myself missing him in The Graduate, which he's not in. And I did want to point out another cultural because you've got and interestingly enough, you've got the you've got Wayne's World two in nineteen ninety three. 10 years later in 2003, another very popular comedy that actually became more popular, I think, over time, Old School, makes a very direct reference to The Graduate when Will Ferrell, Frank the Tank, is mm-hmm. uh, shoots himself with the, like, the horse right. tranquilizer and yeah. just ch- trips out and then just falls into the pool and they play the Sounds of Silence yeah. as he drifts to the bottom of the pool like Benjamin at, in The Graduate. And it's one of those, just it, it, it's kind of like this great highbrow reference that also just, it's this great tribute. And I love that, uh, you know, Todd Phillips is a filmmaker that people definitely have mixed feelings on. Right. But I... I do respect and enjoy that tribute to the graduate and taking that opportunity to pay tribute or I don't know, or building the entire scene around it. Yeah. Who knows? Well, we're not here to talk about the graduate again. We're here to talk about the warriors that we are. But, but, but first John, just in some recent sequel, prequel reboot, what have you news, have mm-hmm. you seen the trailer for Ghostbusters Afterlife? Oh, yeah. We've got a, a few trailers to talk yes. about. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. I think it looks cool. It's kind of like, how could you do a sequel now? Would it be another New York City frenzy? Or would and it I think just that be the doing... same thing in another city? Right. And I think that doing it out in the middle of nowhere, I don't know if it will connect to any other locations, but Mm -hmm. pretty cool. Well, I, I like that there's the connection to the original characters with this Mm -hmm. being, I guess the daughter and grandson of Egon or or daughter-in-law and grandson of Egon. Mm -hmm. And they moved to the farm, which when I originally saw that it was set like around a farm, I naturally thought of the Ray, Ray Stance's family farm. Right. Yeah. So, but I guess why wouldn't Egon also have a family farm? Maybe they explain that. But I'm interested to see how it compares in terms of tone. Like, is this a sequel or is this a reboot? And And it made me think, the trailer made me think about tone and what how much tone determines, because I felt like Ghostbusters 2 very much carried over the same tone from Ghostbusters 1. It 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 kind of sillied it up a little well, bit. Well, Ghostbusters 2 was actually picking up on the popularity of the real Ghostbusters, the animated television series. Right. And they what they did is they made, I don't know, Slimer a more comical... I mean, he was pretty comical in the first one, but like he's a bus driver essentially. I mean, he in, doesn't in do much one. in the second one. Like he has a he he pops up with Rick right. Moranis, yeah. But but also Janine's role is and her look is heavily influenced by the animated series. True. So True. um, 
Yeah, short of making Egon blonde, that's basically what they were doing, is they were going off of the real Ghostbusters TV, animated TV series. Not to be confused with Filmation's Ghostbusters, which is not the real Ghostbusters. It's the fake Ghostbusters. I I mean, it wasn't nearly as good as the real Ghostbusters, because it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, something, and, and I guess we'll see when this new, when Ghostbusters Afterlife comes out it seems like it has its its own origin it's like its own origin story and a new generation of ghost busting so we'll have to see what characters come back and in what capacity and honestly who cares Uh, (laughs) who cares cares? um (laughs) no i guess and my final thought on it is this and a concern that i have just from the trailer is is this going to be like Stranger Things Ghostbusters edition or well, Ghostbusters I think that anybody, Stranger Things edition? Because of Finn Wolfhard, everybody's going to be making that comparison. Yes, and but honestly, also- well, what I'm thinking is like he's a talented actor and, you know, when it comes to looking like he could be the grandson of Egon, pretty much spot on. Yes, Yes, but I don't I'm not basing that solely on Finn Wolfhard. I mean, you could it's you'd be more qualified to say the same thing about it except that it is tonally much darker than Stranger mm-hmm. Things whereas Ghostbusters Afterlife comes across as that like, you know, t- um, you know, whatever TV TV 14, TV PG whatever. Yeah. PG 13 type like sci-fi like the kids who nobody else listens to except for the science teacher who's sympathetic because he's paul rudd yeah and you know the worried single mother except it's not winona Ryder. it's is it judy greer carrie coon carrie coon i believe so yeah it's not judy greer oh it's not judy greer all right no i don't know why i thought it might be (laughs) she'd be great carrie coon yeah Yeah, but that's not who they cast so yeah, we'll we'll see we'll see what happens. Who pops up uh, in in cameos? Who else is in the cast? What connections do we have? Will Ray Parker Jr.'s theme song be brought back? Or Ray are... Parker the Third has recorded a new one. <laughs> Lord Raymond Parker the Third. Now, yeah. much like my father, Bustin makes me feel good. Yeah. Now Huey Lewis Jr. is. Uh... Dewey Lewis, I guess, is is uh, is suing him. Oh, I can't believe I laughed at that. Um, Man, you another must be trailer. Sick. All right, yeah. Another trailer that just dropped is the um, Top Gun Maverick. Have not. I watched don't know if you have a chance to check it out. It. Um, I mean, it came out the day that we're recording. So, yes. I mean, looks very cool. I I wasn't sure about the teaser that came out um, about a month or two ago, yeah. but um, this one, it's kind of like. Okay, I think I can get behind it. it. You know, it's feels like Top Gun, and they make it pretty clear when they show that there's some sort of uh, shirtless sporting scene on maybe a beach. They have to switch it up a little bit. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. On the wings of a plane. Yeah, they're sexy badminton. They're playing. They're they playing rooftop hockey. <laughs> I just know, like, I'm a fan of. What Joseph Kaczynski did with Tron, Tron Legacy. Okay. And I I guess I for me it's 
the thing that I have to get past is I'm not a big fan of Top Gun. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm I'm enough of a fan of Top Gun to want to see the new Top Gun movie. I think it'll be a fun experience. Is it going to be a great movie? Probably not, but I'm sure it'll be fun. Controversial opinion, I'm a Days of Thunder guy. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in you your don't Tony... Be, you don't have to be one or the other. Yeah, no, you do. It's like Beatles, oh, Rolling okay. Stones, you can like them both, but you don't like them both the same. Gotta pick one or the other. Fair enough. All right. Hey, you know what? I'm gonna go for it. I'm a Stones guy. Okay. All right. Hey, all due respect I, to the Fab Four. Well, along the lines of fights that people can pick, we're oh. gonna switch gears and talk about the Warriors. Was all that right. an okay segue? That, I feel like I'm. It, they some of them are easier than others, and that one was a bit of a stretch. No, not really. You made it. You did it. <laughs> the Warriors is a 1979 film directed by Walter Hill, who you may know from Aliens or 48 Hours, starring Nick Nolte. Oh, and uh, you know who else is in that? James, James Remar. Remar. And yeah. David Patrick Kelly. Is David Patrick Kelly in it too? <laughs> David Patrick Kelly is in every action movie in the 1980s, but yes. Yeah. David Patrick uh, Kelly. So The Warriors is um, adapted from a book, and it is about... What's up? Sorry, we should probably explain, just in case anyone is listening to this for the first time, John and I do this little game where we try to connect cast members of the movie we're talking about to cast members of the movie Lorenzo's Oil from 1992, which starred Susan Sarandon, Nick Nolte, Peter Ustinoff, and Margot Martindale in supporting roles, and then really no one else. No offense to anybody else who was in Lorenzo's Oil, including Lorenzo. It is, it's really hard to connect anyone else to that. And why do we do that? I don't know, but we do that. So if you hear us like randomly pointing out that someone was in something with Nick Nolte, Susan Sarandon, Margot Martindale, or Peter Ustinoff, that's, that's it. We've just, we, we've Lorenzo, we've, we've Lorenzo to the show. So, uh, the other night my kid was putting ornaments on a Christmas tree and, uh, I every time I, I know and I think about Lorenzo's oil <laughs> and if you've seen Lorenzo's oil, you know what I'm talking about, too. So I just kind of sat there like ready to pounce in case anything went wrong. Oh, geez. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I didn't make it past that the scene first five messed minutes. me up. I did not make it past the. It has been since like 1993 since I've seen the first five minutes of that movie and not a moment more. Yeah, right. I cannot. Uh, yeah. So the Warriors, the Warriors is yes. about well, okay, first of all, I watched the director's cut on purpose. I knew I knowingly watched the director's cut. Oh, okay, cool. I did not watch the director's cut. Okay. So in the director's cut, it says at the beginning sometime in the future, which I don't believe is part of the theatrical release. Right. But yes. It is it is 1970s New York City, ultra gritty New York. What's up? That was actually a question I had for you because I I feel like I've always known that the Warriors was set in some type of future from 1979, certainly not from now. And I think the the music lends itself to that, the nature of these gangs. It reminded me very much of A Clockwork Orange, which is also one of those set... Like, I think A Clockwork Orange was supposed to be set in 1990, 
which oh, yeah? interestingly hmm. is kind of where I I was thinking about New York in in 1979 and I I did some I did some research looking at uh just what was going on in the late 70s and I I I mean I had been I was born in 1977 so I have no recollection but I remember you know, even in the early 80s, you know, that feeling, that sense that New York City, especially New York at night, was this really kind of like gritty, dangerous place. Right. And then you think about that in the 1970s when it, it really was. I think a movie that actually captures it probably pretty well is Summer of Sam, Spike Lee's movie. Oh, yeah. I felt like because that takes place in the summer of 77 and I feel like it really captures that, like, there's just that kind of, like, tension where it's, like, you don't know what's going to happen. And, like, I'm sure New York wasn't entirely like that in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But that's the image. And when you look at, you know, old pictures and articles about what was going on in that time, it really, there really was a lot of crime in New York. It really, there was a lot of kind of gang activity and areas that were definitely kind of controlled by gangs, not, not gangs in face paint and baseball uniforms. Right. Well, I, I'm going to come back around to that yeah. in a little bit. Yeah. I'm just going to breeze through synopsis. This will be really, really quick. Oh, but I wanted but to ask you before you went on, when do you think it's set? I mean, to me, it feels like it's just set in late 70s, early 80s New York, but like a side of it that we don't know about, that people don't typically get keyed into. I mean, the only other people that you see in this movie, I, I want to do a synopsis first and yeah, then we'll do, go into do this, all do this. Do the synopsis and then we'll come back to it, yeah. So there are a ton of different gangs all around New York. And each of them have their own turfs, and they kind of just stay in their own turfs. And there is a uh, a ceasefire. There is a bit of a truce at the moment, because each of the main gangs, there's like gangs that are not quite registered or official, or they're maybe under the radar. But the main gangs all send a group of people to this park in the Bronx to meet up with this guy, Cyrus, who runs the biggest gang in New York called the Gramercy Riffs. And Cyrus is, everyone's saying it's like, he's the one, he's the guy, he's got these great ideas, and we're all just going to go hear him out. And basically what Cyrus says, after saying, can you dig it a bunch of times, which is amazing, <laughs> is that um, they is that these gangs outnumber the cops like four to one. And... Uh, if they all work together, borough by borough, they can take over the whole city. Then what happens is Luther, who is the leader, I, I guess you can say, of um, the rogues, shoots Cyrus and claims that it's somebody from the gang, the Warriors, for, who are from Coney Island. And unbeknownst to the Warriors, all of the other gangs are sent out to find them and bring them back to the rifts, dead or alive. And uh, the the warriors are just trying to get back to Coney Island where it's safe. They find out towards the end about what happened with Luther, and uh, it ultimately ends up in a, a standoff at Coney Island. But fortunately, 
the riffs found out what really happened and um, take care of uh, Luther the old fashioned way and give the warriors a nice pat on the back for kicking ass, being a great gang. That's all. And Luther is, is played by David Patrick Kelly, who has the chilling line warriors come out to play where he is clinking the beer bottles on his fingers and uh, it's just like the sound of it is so menacing and he has just this look and it's just like man this guy's crazy and it's awesome and uh when asked why he shot luther he's just like i just like to do stuff like that sometimes why he shot cyrus (laughs) Cyrus, I'm sorry, why Luther shot Cyrus. And uh, yeah, it's so great. And uh, David Patrick Kelly, I mean, for me, I he's been in everything, but I recognize him most from Twin Peaks. Yeah, Jerry Horn. Yeah. Jerry Horn. He's just so good. He's, he's great. So good. Action movie fans would remember him as Sully in Commando. Right. You're mm-hmm. a really funny guy. <laughs> I can only, I do and, much better Arnold Schwarzenegger impressions when we're not recording. Sure you do. I do. So uh, the warriors, the warlord, I think is what they call the main person who's in charge of the gang at the moment. The one who's in charge at the beginning oh, yeah. uh, gets carried away by some of the uh, the riffs and beaten up. We assume that they probably killed him. Because he's the one that uh, that Luther said shot Cyrus. And mm-hmm. uh, that means that the next person in charge is Swan, who's played by Michael Beck of Xanadu fame and like a ton of other things. And um, he's kind of just like this quiet and collected, I don't know, ultra hunk. Very yeah. attractive people in this, in this movie. And... Uh, yeah. It, what's interesting about uh, about Swan and the rest of the Warriors is like, although they are the good guys, they're not great people. No, no, they're very problematic. And the most problematic of the group of the Warriors is Ajax, who's played by James Raymar, who's been in everything, including yeah. Forty Eight Hours. Uh, Dexter's father. It, Dexter's Dexter. father, and it's so it's so awesome seeing him in such an early role. Yeah, and it's just like he's so good at this, and then like you know where his life and career goes, and you're just like, I can see how that happened. He's just mm-hmm. so good. Yeah, he is. We have uh, a radio DJ who's the one that kind of uh, signals out to all the gangs about the things that are going on and gives them a bit, like a soundtrack for the night that's played by Lynn Thigpen, who's the chief from Where in the World is Carmen San Diego. Yes. Although I always she's Oh, another, she's been in a ton of other things. She's, but but to me, she's I feel like I have a negative inclination towards her for no other reason than I think the first thing I saw her in, or at least like really remember her from, was Lean on Me. And she was hmm. like the parent who was so against joe clark morgan Uh freeman and gave him such a hard time and i always felt like i was like lady why are you getting in the way this man wants to make progress oh (laughs) i mean arguably what like it's it's interesting watching that movie once you've worked in the school system especially in the inner city right and seeing and like you know he changed the doors shut in that movie and you're just like oh 
bad, really, really bad. Lots of kids. Fire hazard. Oh, Union is not going to protect you. Anyway. Yeah. Back to the Warriors. Also, they are joined by Mercy, who's played by Deborah Van Vacklenburg, who um, is loosely associated with the Orphans, the fir- one of the first gangs that the Warriors encounter, who are like a bunch of dummies who aren't like they weren't invited to the the meetup in the Bronx and they're, they're not just affiliated. like dirty yeah they're just like dirty they're and the weird <laughs> they're not in the union so they're just like these weirdos who are this like <laughs> really wannabe are. gang essentially and um mercy essentially calls them chickens for letting the warriors go and when the warriors like come back at them with a molotov cocktail to a car she's like I think I'm going to hang out with these guys from now on. And it basically follows them down to uh, Coney Island and uh, really interesting character. Yeah. Yeah. And it's kind of a shame that Deborah Van Vacklenburg has popped up in a bunch of things, but has never really done anything that was as big. Yeah. You know, John, there's this one scene that... This movie, I think when most people think of the Warriors, they think of the, of the fights. I mean, the action scenes are incredible. They think yep. of David Patrick Kelly with the, with the bottles going, Warriors, right. come out and play. One of the scenes that actually adds so much meaning to this movie is they're on the subway. I, th- I think it's probably when they get on at Union, I think at Union Square. The prom kids? Yeah. Yeah. They're... They're, they, and they've just like as, they've just escaped from I mean, gang after gang after gang. Yeah. They've already fought pretty much all of them at this point. Except that would have been the, right uh, after they fought with the um, the roller skating the roller guy skating in the baseball. bathroom. Oh, that guy! You know who that guy reminded me of? Um, from Dazed and Confused, the uh, the, oh, the character yeah. from Dazed and Confused. Who, I know who you mean. Yeah, except Dazed and Confused takes place in 1976. So it's it's kind of like, well, he wasn't aping that style, but interesting. <laughs> anyway, yeah. the scene where they're on the train and it's Mercy is sitting with oh Swan. Swan, thank you. Yeah. And they're bruised, they're cut up. Yeah. But the thing is they it doesn't phase them. They're kind of bruised and cut up the whole movie. And right. it doesn't phase them. You don't notice it. And this is a really such a fascinating part of the movie. And it really, I think watching it this time and looking at it through a more critical lens really makes me appreciate the direction of it. Because first you have this scene where these four, four kids who are clearly, it's the first time you really see people that are not part of this gang community. Well, that's, yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to talk about is like you, the only people that you see that aren't in gangs are firefighters, cops, these four kids. You see a few people like in the streets at one point, but aside from that, there's nobody else. And I would argue that even the cops are treated as a gang. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. They're they're a gang. They're another gang. That's who the warriors think they're on the run from. Yeah, really is is the cops. Like you said, they don't realize that they've been framed for Cyrus's murder until almost the end. Yeah. So, but I love this scene, and it 
just to just just to describe it, they're sitting there, and these four kids who are just from a different world, maybe they live in the city, maybe they came in from Long Island or Jersey, but they're not from the neighborhoods that these people are from, that Mercy or the Warriors are from. And they're this reminder that there's this other world. And it's a reminder to to us at the viewer, because at this point we're so into this, this gangland nightscape of the Warriors that we we're not shown this other side of of New York the yeah it was very polarized i feel and what he captured was it's a reality check for these people and they sit down and they look at mercy and you see the camera shows like her feet are are dirty yeah. and scraped and all of a sudden she it's like she doesn't feel pretty anymore and it's such a touching moment when Swan gives her the flowers when they mm. get off the train. But then they get off the train, and it's also the first time we see daylight. Yeah. All of a sudden, these light things, these the prom kids getting on the train in these really light colors, and then daylight. It's so it's so startling to us because we're so into that world. But that's to me, it's. It's where the heart of this movie is, and it lends itself to the message that's perf- that would have been perfectly applicable to 1979 New York City and the life that people lived, not because they necessarily chose it, but because they, right. they had to. Yeah, and Mercy definitely talks quite a bit about how she likes her life. She knows that it's not glamorous or perfect in any way, but like she's happy with where she is and she knows that she has to be happy with where she is in life because she's not being handed anything. No. Yeah. So basically it's like, look, I'm just going to hang out with the gang that works out best for me because that's what I've got. And, uh, she chose wisely because those doofuses and the orphans were no good. Oh man. Oh, that guy, the, the leader of the orphans, that guy's fantastic. Yeah, I think his name was like Sully or something like that. Uh, oh, yeah. So and another thing that happens is uh, some of the warriors get kind of picked off along the way. Um, one of the one of whom gets kind of tossed in front of a subway train. Oh, yeah, by a like, cop. By a cop, right. Because they're in this big, you know, fight with these cops in the, in the subway and just gets kind of tossed into it. And it's just like you... Ne- He's never mentioned again, like doesn't even get acknowledged that that happened. Um, another one is Ajax gets uh, busted by an undercover cop played by Mercedes Rule. Academy who, uh, Award winner Mercedes Rule of the Fisher King. One of my favorite movies. And well. also she was recently in Hustlers. Was she? That's great. Yeah. She plays kind of like the the mother role to all of these uh strippers and uh yeah, that makes she, sense she and, and when i saw her i was just like hey it's mercedes rule great that rules that rule that doesn't that just rule, rule that mercedes rules yeah it rules and uh so what happens is they're walking through the park and uh ajax sees her and he's like i'm gonna go over there and says Rape some her. skeezy things yeah he's <laughs> yeah. Well, that's kind of the plan, but when he sits down, she is totally coming on to him. Yeah. And 
it's not until they actually initiate contact that he gets really rough and then she cuffs him to the bench and uh then a bunch of cops come i mean it's kind of great yeah what's what's also interesting is there are a lot of moments in the movie where you think that's something you think that the warriors are going to do something really bad it ends up not being as bad as you think it's going to be that's one of them where it's like you think he's going to go there and just rape her yeah Instead, it turns into this other thing where he does get aggressive, but he gets his comeuppance. Um, another thing is when uh, the warriors are with the orphans and Swan goes down to Mercy's dress and you think that he's going to like rape her. Yeah. And he just tears off a bit of her dress to make the Molotov cocktail. And it's just from the bottom. It's not like in a bad spot or anything. And then another time is when there's a group of the warriors who get off one of the subway cars and see this group of girls and you think like, uh-oh, what are they going to do to these girls? But the girls are totally just like, yes, let's hang out. And as we find out, they are members of the of the gang, the Lizzies. The Lizzies. Who bring them into their den and are essentially just like, all right, take your pick, whichever one of us you want. And they're all just like dancing and just like having a great time. And then it turns out that they lock the door and try to kill them because they are under orders and they use their sexuality to to bring the warriors in they're awesome yeah i love the the lizzies they're great i yeah th- i mean fantastic scene what i love about that scene is the way that the tension builds i mm-hmm. i love that you have you have one character you have rembrandt who right. i love He's- the character of rembrandt yeah, he's he's the one who's more cautious. He's, he's very he seems cautious. younger. He seems like not so sure about, you know, everything that they're doing. Yeah. And uh rightfully I so. The, I love the way that the tension builds in that scene, like with the jukebox, you've got mm-hmm. the 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 girls who are they're passing around a joint, so there's that element of of drugs and like there's Mm -hmm. danger and it's actually pretty risque especially for 1979 the two girls who are who are dancing and i think they start doing more than dancing i thought the tension built over that scene you knew from the time (laughs) i i feel like you kind of saw it coming like you knew you knew it you knew something was going to go wrong. And then there's that moment when the door locks and yeah. you see the gun pulled. And that's the moment the when knife. they find out because Rembrandt's the one who hears them say, you got, yeah, like, you're the ones who iced Cyrus. Right. Yeah. But that's only three of the warriors. So yeah. there's still the rest of them who don't know. It's what's his face? Like Rat or who's the other one? Uh, Vermin. I don't remember their name. Vermin. Yeah. Vermin. Uh, yeah. It's... It's a really cool scene. That's maybe my favorite scene. It, it's so powerful to me and just so badass because you're not rooting against the Lizzie's except for the fact that you have to because the movie's called The Warriors. Right. Although, man, the Lizzie's cannot shoot. Yeah. Because <laughs> they had guns ablazing everywhere. They could not. Rembrandt right. got cut. Right. But. They, I, I was like, how are they not hitting these guys? How are like mm. how are they're shooting at pretty close range? Like they're in an apartment, 
how are they not hitting these guys? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, I love the scene too. It's great. Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's a really fun movie. I will say the, the difference between the theatrical release and the director's cut from my memory of the theatrical release, the director's cut is essentially the same except at the beginning it has a like scrolls essentially telling like a story from like medieval times or something like that is that, it the greek is it the greek myth uh that this is based on oh it might be actually uh the based and, and then on the other th- uh, yeah anabasis anabasis that's it and then the um there are certain times when it goes from like different location to different location where it'll freeze frame and turn into like a comics, a comic panel. And then like the frame will turn into like a drawing of itself and then it'll kind of move the page. Well, that reflects that it's based on a graphic novel. Right. But it, what didn't work for me about it is that it's, I don't know when the director's cut was made, but it seemed way more recent (laughs) than it should have been. Like the font was like Comic Sans and it it takes you yeah. out of it. You know what? I think I've seen the director's cut and it, it it's the backstory of how I came to own the copy of the theatrical cut because the copy that I own is just whatever the original Paramount Pictures issued DVD release was. Nothing mm-hmm. special on it. And I remember it was when I was living with... Uh, Big Kev. I was rooming with... mentioned on previous episodes, Big Kev. I was rooming with Big Kev of Big Kev's Geek Stuff. And Big Kev, this was a favorite movie of his, if I remember correctly. And he... And I lived there 2004 to 2007. So it was somewhere in that range. So Comic Sans would be appropriate. Font, yeah. Fontage. And I remember Big Kev bought the like the special edition director's cut when it came out on on dvd this is pre pre blu-ray we're talking and so he just gave me his copy of the other one gotcha so oh, that's it, cool it, kev if you're listening thank you i have watched that dvd on several occasions so um, yeah and it, it's be, i don't remember the first time i saw it i couldn't tell you when right um i was probably in college it's, yeah. that's when you see the warriors I guess, yeah, like high school, college. Now I want to jump to life beyond the original release of The Warriors. Uh, There have been a few things to mention before we get into where our minds have gone. In 2015, there was a short documentary. I think it was done by like Rolling Stone. Hey, speaking of the Rolling Stones, Rolling Stone magazine. There we go. Did something called uh, The Warriors, The Last Subway Ride Home, which uh, had a lot of the original cast members going back to Coney Island and revisiting the Warriors and seeing how Coney Island people view the Warriors, essentially. Mm. I haven't seen it, so I can't say for sure how it all plays out, but that's something. There was a video game for PlayStation in 2005. More notably, going back to, um, you were talking about Tony Scott before, Tony Scott had planned a remake of the film. Yeah. Um, this is from Wikipedia. It says, in an interview in 2005, uh, Tony Scott said that the remake would be set in modern-day New York City. Gangs such as the Baseball Furies... We didn't talk about the Baseball Furies. Barely. We alluded to them. The Baseball Furies are a gang that they fight in um, Riverside Park, I want to say. 
It's so, by, I know it's somewhat somewhat near 96th Street because that's the station that they go to. Yeah, I want to say that where they're fighting might be Morningside Park. Just because okay. there's that huge slope. Actually, so just to jump, you mentioned Riverside Park. That is mm-hmm. where they actually filmed the big scene with all the gangs. That was, uh, okay. it was meant, so it's supposed to be Van Cortland Park, but right. I don't. I don't remember why they couldn't film in Van Cortland Park, which is at the north end of of the Bronx. For those of any anyone unfamiliar with Manhattan or New York City geography, New York geography, you, the, the Warriors are traveling from the very top of the island, the North Bronx, mm-hmm. all the way to the very south of Brooklyn. So, Brooklyn, the northernmost end of New York City, the five boroughs, to the southernmost end. Oh yeah, yeah, yes. Even, I mean, a hellish journey at any time of yeah. day. Briefly, while we're talking about the production, uh, you had mentioned actual gangs in New York. Uh, mm-hmm. The production crew uh, or the production trucks were actually guarded by actual New York gangs, and they were paid, I think, like 500 bucks a day or something. Well, they used gang members in, in that scene, in the, the big oh, scene with Cyrus. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. But yeah, like... Actual New York gangs were very active in the production of this movie, which is so cool. I love that. Yeah. So uh, gangs such as the Baseball Furies and the Hi-Hats would not be included in the remake, it says. And then um, after Tony Scott died, uh, Mark Neveldine. Neveldine? I don't know. Showed you interest say in Neveldine, I say Neveldine. Well, we're not going to call the whole thing off. He directed Ghost Rider, Spirit of Vengeance, and I think that that's pretty much it. Married to Allison Lohman. Oh, okay. She's delightful. You haven't seen her in a long time. Of Matchstick Men, of Big Fish. It's the first thing that pops into my mind. I think like White Oleander. She's great in Matchstick Men. Yeah, Matchstick Men. And then in... uh, Ridley Scott. In July of 2016, this is also according to Wikipedia... Uh, Joe and Anthony Russo announced that they were working with Paramount and Hulu for a reimagined Warriors TV series. Frank Baldwin was signed on to write the series. So those are all the things that have happened or may happen or have been talked about happening with the Warriors uh, since then. The the PlayStation video game is essentially the plot of the movie. There's right nothing more to it as far as I can tell. Yeah. So, so Dan, what would you do with the Warriors now? Well, and if you okay. say what I'm going to say, I would not be surprised. Well, uh, okay. Um, so, a couple of just just thoughts and connections. So we know the Warriors takes place in the, the near future. Let's say it takes place in the 1980s, because honestly, it's not a far cry from 1979, New York City. Sure. Another movie that takes place not too long after that could be set up by the events of the Warriors. Now, let's say at the end of this, the rifts at the top end of New York and the Warriors at the bottom end of of New York, who kind of have a partnership now, kind of make Cyrus's plan happen, but or they try to make it happen, but it results in... New York eventually becoming a police, st- like New York City becoming taken over martial law, the military 
and eventually becoming a prison island where the President of the United States crashes and Snake Plissken is sent out to retrieve him in Escape from New York. You know what? I can see it. I can see it happening. Now, another, I want to make another connection because, of course, as I'm thinking sequel and I'm like, oh, but that would be interesting. But I'm like, oh, yeah, Escape from New York. Like, what if what if Snake Plissken had encountered leftover members of these gangs? Amazing, right? So, but then you go backwards and it's like, okay, so how about a movie of the origin of all these gangs? Like, how did it start? Where Where did it start? What did it start with? And then I thought of Gangs of New York, which... Okay. If, if I were to watch it as a Warriors prequel, I think I would enjoy it much more than I enjoyed it the first time I saw it, which was not very I, much. That's one that I, I haven't seen. And every time I think about watching it, I'm like, eh. Here's my take on Gangs of New York. I love the, the beginning, like the first 10, 15 minutes where it's like Liam Neeson and his crew up against Daniel Day-Lewis and his crew. But... Then Liam Neeson's character, who is like awesome, and you're all like, oh, yeah, no, he's going to kick ass, is dead. And then you've got Leonardo DiCaprio, who, when he is in the right roles, I think is fantastic. But when Mm -hmm. he's miscast, he's really, it sticks out to me. Gangs of New York, I thought, had some pretty terrible miscasting of Leonardo DiCaprio and Cameron Diaz. Uh-huh. And I thought it really, I felt like it really dragged. I was just like, when is this going to end? When are we going to get to whatever it is we're getting to? So that's my take mm-hmm. of Gangs on New York. But I was imagining almost like a Warriors prequel set. I mean, what was that? Like turn of the century, turn of the 20th century? Right. Now that you say turn of the century, you have to be specific. So, John, back to the Warriors. I I kind of like so I like the the Russo. I, so I think I think the idea of a prequel would be would be fun. I don't know that I would want a remake. If I, I think I would need to go and actually read the source material, the novel, to see if it kind of calls for a readaptation or reimagining. But I do think a an ex, like an expanded series where maybe maybe the series is following different different gangs and it's set in this world and it's showing you know maybe like almost a sopranos if you will for the street gang crowd so that's okay that that that's that's where i'm landing on it that that's kind of where i'm landing i i would i would go prequel origin story where where does this how did the gang structure begin but not gangs of new york and i'd be interested to see this russo joe and anthony russo hulu series it could sure they could be a good uh a good fit for the property as far as i'm concerned yeah so for me i i'm slightly in line with you in one of the last things that you said which is exploring the different gangs but here's the thing the riffs I mean, that's they're kind of interesting. They do martial arts. That's kind of cool. Uh, they're an, they, they're seemingly an all-black gang, which I want to mention another thing that I really like about the Warriors is that there is a lot of diversity, and 
it's never made an issue of. And if I can add in, I watched a brief behind the scenes documentary and Walter Hill was talking mm-hmm. about how he initially proposed that there should be no white characters in the gangs. Oh. He didn't want any white characters. Well, so. I think that it, I think that the way that it turned out was really strong because you have you know a lot of different races in yeah. there and it's never well, made an issue of at all. Right. I I which is that actually really does add to the the commentary. I really think this is like a higher quality film than it's often given credit for. Absolutely. So so anyway, so the riffs they're they're pretty interesting. We we see the Turnbill ACs, they're a gang who's on this truck who is trying to run down the warriors. Um I don't know. They're we don't really know anything about them. I I want to say that some of them are well they call one of the guys calls one of them a skinhead. I don't know if they're they mean like skinhead skinhead or just the fact that his head's shaved. Well the Turnbull AC is could the A stand for Aryan and the C stand for crew? We we don't know this. I don't know. Uh we've got the rogues who with the exception of Luther are pretty uninteresting people. You know who they reminded me of? This is one of those really strong... I mean, it, it's almost impossible to not connect the Warriors to A Clockwork Orange because uh-huh. A Clockwork Orange was very much about a, a, this quasi-futuristic gangland at, mm-hmm. at night. I felt that the rogues reminded me of Billy Boy's gang in Clockwork oh, yeah. Orange. That's the gang that Alex and his droogs come across on their first night out. Right. And they're in that... Uh, the derelict casino, he calls it, and they're of course raping a woman. Right, and Alex and his guys come in and kind of they they save her, but not for the purpose of saving her, but just because they want to fight these other guys. Mm-hmm. And they like I felt like it was it Luther, one of his sidekicks, kind of had a similar like Nazi uh, pin or badge on his hat. Oh, I don't remember that, but that's I could see that being a thing. Oh. Another civilian, another non-gang member is the girl who runs the little like, newsstand that the rogues are, I don't know, stealing candy from? I don't know. Luther's like on the payphone outside. Oh, yeah. 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 Anyway, um, so aside from Luther, the rogues are pretty uninteresting. The orphans are a bunch of dummies. Baseball Furies are essentially silent they're like mimes they're I don't baseball know if we... mimes with colorful face paint yeah so we've seen all we need to see it from them as far as i'm concerned i don't remember i don't know if we got the name of the gang that they fought in the subway bathroom although imagine how that must have smelled yikes Ooh. aside from the roller skating guy they're all just a bunch of just they wear know. overalls like that's their they're like the, my that's buddy. their thing but the lizzies that is a gang that is extremely interesting and i want to see more of those lizzies whether it's a series or just a, a movie it could be a prequel it could be oh. a sequel it could be its own standalone thing doesn't matter the lizzies are interesting and so i want more of them a spin-off prequel yeah, just the Lizzies. Yeah. I could I the Yeah. The other thought that I had was a prequel spin-off focused on Mercedes Mercedes Rules character. Would it just be called Mercedes Rules? 
Yeah, kind of. It's like apostrophe a, as her, like her rules, her the rules yeah. that you have to follow. It's a a young female undercover cop in let's just say late 70s early 80s New York City. That's really interesting and she handles handles herself extremely well and performs her job extremely well. Wasn't really interesting that, character. Wasn't that that show, Police Woman with Jessica Walter? Am I making this up? Oh, I don't know. But who would you cast as a young Mercedes Rule? That's a good question. Like a Selena Gomez? Lizzie Kaplan? Lizzie Kaplan. Oh, Lizzie Kaplan would be a good young Mercedes Rule. Yeah, Selena Gomez. I Selena don't know Gomez. That. Yeah, I don't know. Why not? Yeah, Lizzie Kaplan. Let's put Lizzie Kaplan in there. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily need to be prequel. It could just be its own standalone thing, movie or series. Mm-hmm. But that's what I would want to see. Hmm. All right. Because this this movie has fascinating and kick-ass female characters. If I, if I may. You may. I'm, I can dig it. You can dig it. To paraphrase slash answer Cyrus's question. Yeah. Can you dig it? I love his voice. <laughs> oh, he's amazing. Can you dig it? The actor who played Cyrus, who whose name Roger Hill. Roger Hill. He had some uh, legal beef with the PlayStation game that came out because they used his likeness without his permission. But I believe he has since passed. So we will... We won't be getting any um, any more Cyrus stuff. I mean, Cyrus is dead, but, you know, famously. We, yeah, Roger Hill will not be coming back to the franchise. No. Or any franchise. Yeah. Pour R. one R. out. Pour yeah. one out for Roger Hill. We can dig so it, Dan, Cyrus. Any any last thoughts for the Warriors? Just to say, if you haven't seen the Warriors in a long time, check it out. I would say watch it in the like don't just you know break out the the old VHS you have because you probably don't have a VCR anyway but if you're like me you do and watch like really check out this movie try to watch it when it's dark so that you can really experience the the neon the fluorescence that lights those lights really yeah, but it 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 showed you this other side of the city, and I love the yeah. way that he uses the lights and the the daylight it makes. It's the one time where, like, a showdown that happens in the early morning mm-hmm. after all this. There's so much tension behind this showdown because it's been building up to it, but it's also like it's dawn. Yeah, <laughs> which makes. Beach. Yeah, which makes Luther even creepier. Yes, yes. So just just to say that I've always really enjoyed the Warriors, but I I've gained a greater appreciation for it after this most recent viewing. John, I couldn't agree more. It's a fantastic movie. Gets better with every viewing for me. And I uh, I was when I was watching it, I said to uh, Laura, my wife, before I put it on. Would you like to watch it with me? Because it's something where she always references Luther's line at the end, but has never actually seen it. And I'm like, you can't say it if you haven't seen it. 
I'm sure so there's a lot of people it. who say it without seeing it. Oh, I'm sure it's another one of those lines that's parodied or used all the time. Yeah. She was like, no, I you know, want to get to bed early. Maybe 15 minutes into it, she comes in, sits down, and says, all right, I'm not going to get sucked in. And stayed not, to, not just until the very end, but I then rewound it and caught her up on the beginning. Did you watch it on VHS? You rewound it? Well, what else would you call it? I went back in time in the thing. I don't know. I, sk- I, I went back in to an earlier track. I went back. <sighs> Sorry, I'm just busting your chops. It's We can still I'm say just, rewind. I'm just busting chops. I know. I say it. I don't know. I don't know if I say it, but it's fine. It's okay. You can, we can say, say these things. You can say it. I say fast forward. Yeah, it's the same But I feel like fast forward, though, doesn't... I feel like rewind is specific to the action happening with the VHS tape, whereas fast forward is just like, I'm going to go forward, but faster than the the rate I'm going now. Should be faster forward. So then should it be fast reverse? Reverse scan? Okay, whatever. Let's talk about our next episode. Oh, boy. Well, talking about a reverse scan, I don't know. That's has no connection whatsoever yes you want to take that again with something that makes sense no (laughs) i don't have anything that i don't have anything that makes sense um so no for our next film we are going to be tackling a classic from 1990 all about a new york gangster who ends up going into the witness protection program that's right folks we're talking about my blue heaven very excited dan thought we were talking Thought I was talking about Goodfellas, didn't you? Didn't you? Huh? Huh? <laughs> well, there's a uh, connection. There, we will talk about it on the next oh, episode. We will get to it. So, My Blue Heaven, 1990, Steve Martin, Rick Moranis. Can't wait to talk about it, John. Good journey, Dan. Good journey. <laughs>